is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. CDC now says you're free to move about the country as long as you're fully vaccinated. They say it's okay to travel again, but there are some recommendations. Mask wearing, so no walking into airports with your whole face showing. Speaking of the CDC, it's now stepping back from a statement about vaccines stopping the virus. Easter, a couple days away. What will church services look like a year into the pandemic? And we'll look into how schools are holding up a year into the pandemic. Let's start with those travel guidelines, though, for the fully vaccinated. Dr. Philip Wong, epidemiologist, director of the Dallas County Health and Human Services Department. So, doctor, these guidelines, uh, the changes, good thing, yeah? Right. I, I think it uh, reflects, you know, just more uh, information that we're getting regarding the effectiveness of vaccines. And uh, it all has been good news. And it's also, I think, more incentive for people uh, to get the vaccine. No, of course, I could hear some people saying, "Okay, so I've been vaccinated. Am I okay being on an airplane for four or five hours with a bunch of people who might not have been? Right. And so, you know, I mean, I think there's still, uh, you know, recommendations that you still um, have to mask and do other things. But it's uh, it again, it's they're giving the okay that, yes, you can travel domestically. Is it kind of a both sides still, though? Because the guidance is, you know, hey, this is low risk. As long as you play by the rules, you got your shots, you can go. But then still the CDC director is saying, you know, I'd advocate against this. And we've had messaging problems this whole time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which is it, guys? Sure. And actually just misstated, I said domestically, but it is both domestic and international. But uh, again, I think we continue to learn more uh, as we go along. And this has been the way it's been from the start. Uh, new information uh, helps us feel uh, more comfortable with um, uh, opening some things up. And now this is sort of the next step as we get more uh, data uh, showing how effective the vaccines are. But to get back to to the the messaging issue, which is a significant one, I think, it is confusing, is it not, to people that earlier in the week you had the head of the CDC, as, as you probably know, who was expressing her really grave concerns about the possibility of a fourth wave and and how uh, dire that could be. And then here we are at the end of the week, and the news is, okay, if you're vaccinated, go ahead. (laughs) Now you can go someplace. Now you can go someplace. You don't have to quarantine. You don't have to take a test. And I, I do think that people kind of try to absorb both of those messages and don't know how to compute it. Sure. And it's I mean, I think the message is uh, there are that vaccinated people, it is safer uh, to do some more things. But I think the other message still does remain that we are still in a precarious situation uh, that we can't just fully open up. There's still a lot of people who aren't vaccinated and um, that we need to continue to do these other common sense uh, protections uh, to keep the containment and slowing the spread of the virus. Yeah, I guess just pick and choose and stay as safe as you can. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not a free for all now, uh, but there are some limited uh, things that that are continuing to open up uh, as the data becomes available. You're a physician. Uh, I I don't know. Have have you been vaccinated yourself? I have. Okay. So you're fully vaccinated and you're a doctor. What things would you now do? What things would you not now do? I think, you know, I've been sticking with the uh, CDC guidance and, uh, it, you know, having a 
a small get together with other vac fully vaccinated persons, I feel comfortable with um, keeping gatherings. Uh, then, to if I if it were some other uh, group that might be unvaccinated, if that's one uh, limited household, but not with uh, persons at high risk. Uh, I have not traveled, uh, you know, in over a year here. Uh, but now I, you know, I think that this is um, a nice, uh, you know, guidance. I would feel more comfortable doing it now. So it's been, what, a few weeks since your governor there said, uh, open up 100%. You don't have to have mask mandates. What has the result of that been? Yeah. And, you know, at the local level, we do not agree with that. We are saying that that was pre too premature. Uh, and, and that's the way it's been throughout much of this. Uh, at various points in time, the, at the state level, they opened things up and we said, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so we have our own local guidance uh, that we've had out there saying you still need to do these other things. Uh, what, what's been encouraging, many of the local businesses have uh, continued to have the requirements for masking. And I think we still see uh, some pretty good compliance. So our numbers are, uh, knock on wood, still uh, staying relatively controlled. We've been, uh, you know, watching uh, very closely since spring break. But but what about other parts of the state? Because, I mean, Texas certainly is a, is a huge state. The parts of the state where they are perhaps not uh, being conscientious and are following the uh, governor's uh, mandate about opening everything up, are, you, are we seeing any signs that in those parts of the state the infections are ramping up? Uh, I think that definitely, uh, you know, I mean, there there certainly is variation in Texas. Um, even in, in Dallas, you know, we've seen some flattening and slowing down of the positive uh, reductions that we've been seeing in like hospital numbers. Uh, so, it, it, you know, again, I think that's why these messages are somewhat mixed in that we still need to be very cautious. Uh, we're hopeful and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And there are some things now that uh, as people get vaccinated, uh, that, you know, more people can do some of these things, but we still need to be very cautious. Dr. Philip Wong, epidemiologist, director, Dallas County Health. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky made a bold claim this week. Fully vaccinated people don't carry the COVID-19 virus. But the CDC has walked that back and put out a much more cautious statement when it comes to the effects of the vaccines. It shows the difficulty of communicating science. Dr. Erwin Redliner, Director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, Professor of Health Policy Management at Columbia University. So, Doctor, we talked in the last segment about messaging. Why can't doctors just say things are, they're looking good, but we're still figuring out the rest? I mean, why is that, why is that so hard? Well, this is, you know, this is the reality really since the beginning of the pandemic confusion about what to say to the public, how to say it, not only the words, guys, but also the tone of voice, the sense of whether we're expressing something to be optimistic or pessimistic. These are all judgments that have to be made, and not everybody's that great at making those judgments, especially in an environment where there is so much that is still unknown. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we are talking about you know, Dr. Fauci and others are talking about how well this is that we're really looking forward to a, a quasi-normal potentially July 4th and Labor Day and all that. And, and then we had, because uh, we were having a lull and we plateaued with cases, and now we have an uptick again. But as far as the specifics about uh, Dr. Walensky's comment, this is, this is the trap that public officials often fall into. You're in the rhythm of a conversation with a very popular host, and... Uh, you know, you're trying to give, I guess, people an optimistic 
tone, you're going to say, okay, get vaccinated, and you're not going to, you won't even carry it. Not only, not only will it protect you from getting very sick or dying, but uh, you won't even carry it, which is actually that last piece of that sentence is not known yet. And, uh, you know, it takes a certain desk and thinking on your feet to be able to say exactly what you just said in leading up to this uh, question. To me, it's not that hard really to say, yeah, right, we, uh, we're working on that. We don't know the answer yet. There's ongoing research. We'll get that answer soon. We'll, of course, let you know. Uh, but I guess in the heat of the moment, an interview with, uh, you know, Rachel, that, that statement popped out that, unfortunately, had to be, you know, rolled back by the CDC. This is not just the problem of, oh, I made a mistake, let's roll it back. I'm concerned about these kinds of missteps in communication because they will undermine confidence in government. And we just came off a year of insanity around communications and misstatements and dishonesty and lack of transparency and humiliating of public figures by the president. And it's very important that the public now feel confident about what government officials are saying. So when the CDC director has to has to have be walked back in terms of statements she made, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it's just uh, I wish it hadn't happened. How much is the public to blame for all this, too? I mean, we are a pretty impatient lot, aren't we? I mean, we, 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 we want we want an answer now we expect an answer within seconds of the time somebody defines. I have a vacation to go on. Exactly. And, yeah, and, exactly. and we just don't want to wait for answers, do we? Well, we don't want to wait, and we're not really good at accepting we don't know. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, you better know. You were, <laughs> this is your job to know. So if you don't know, I'm not happy. So all of those factors, the impatience, the fact that we want clarity, whether or not clarity actually exists. We want it. I mean, I get this from my own family members. You know, what do you mean you don't know whether I should get vaccinated, uh, you know, next week or this week or what? You know, it's that 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 is actually an issue for really all of us. The public is impatient, as you point out, and we do want clarity. We don't want, well, maybe and ifs and buts, and we're still looking at it. Uh, you know, I think that's I don't know whether that's true of all people, but certainly Americans have that. It feels like that in, internal drive for clarity and immediacy. I don't know. Do you guys agree with that? Because I think that's that's my general sense. I haven't done a study about that, but that's what I think. Oh, yeah. Just go on the Internet, right? Yeah. It's, all, it's all right there. Uh, Dr. Erwin Redliner, Director of the Pandemic Resource Response Initiative and uh, Health Policy Management at Columbia. Doctor, thanks for coming back. Easter is the second biggest Christian holiday today when churches are much more crowded. It wasn't the case last year. What about this year? Lots of people vaccinated. Cases are down from the winter surge. Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. So, Reverend, how do you think this Easter Sunday is going to look compared to the last one? Vastly different indeed. Uh, I remember one year ago we had empty churches. Uh, We were transmitting our services via the conduit of streaming platforms, primarily social media platforms. There was this sort of collective question mark, uh, a great amount of anxiety, angst, consternation. Today, with the vaccinations and with the acknowledgement that we're coming out of this pandemic, there's a lot more hope. So, yes, we're not going to be filled up to capacity. We're going to continue to implement CDC recommendations. But we are coming back together in physical buildings for Easter services. And what does that mean to people? I mean, the eagerness to, to return and, and see in some cases people you probably haven't seen in in a year's time for some of them. 
it's very emotional and it really is emotional. Uh, we had some individuals come in. We already began some good, some Holy Week services this week. And I saw parishioners and members I haven't seen for in over a year. And uh, some of them were in tears. So it's very emotional that uh, the church is called to come together according to the author of the book of Hebrews. So it's part of our DNA. We're a family. We're a community. And streaming worked for the vast majority of pastors and churches as it pertains to delivering the gospel message of good news. But there's nothing that can compare to coming together, being in the same space at the same time, filled with faith, hope, love and truth. And since you are uh, president of the, as we said, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, uh, I would imagine in some ways you have a a bigger task uh, ahead of you this Easter Sunday, because as you know, uh, this pandemic has particularly been very harsh on the Hispanic communities in the United States. Uh, they've uh, suffered a disproportionate amount of uh, deaths and, and sickness from the coronavirus. The vaccination rate is not quite as high as it is in other communities. What's the message that you have to give those people? It's the message of the empty tomb. If, if Jesus came out of that tomb and through resurrection power, you and I, by faith, it requires faith. You and I can come out and every Latino, every member of the immigrant community, toda la raza, we can come out of the most precarious of circumstances. We can come out of COVID. We can come out of fear, anxiety, doubt, depression. We can come out of addiction, broken homes, economic melees, whatever vestige of darkness. If Jesus did it, we can do it according to Romans 8:11. We can come out of it. That's my message. The immigrant community is a blessed community. The Latino Hispanic community is one of America's greatest blessings. We have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, but we have a thriving spirit. And I know we're going to come out of this shining with great empathy for those who have lost loved ones throughout the course of this pandemic. It is such a climb, though, to come out of all the loss from last year. Does it change how you how you speak to the people that you speak to? Oh, without a doubt, it does change. It, it, and the message, the wine is the same, using a metaphor, but the wine skin changes. Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, we're not what we used to be. And because of the loss of life, my family was impacted directly via the COVID virus. My daughter ended up in a ventilator in ICU. Uh, I lost loved ones. Uh, outside of California. I, I get it. It's personal, as personal as, as it can possibly get. With that being said, it's Easter weekend, and this element of faith, faith overcomes fear. I know it sounds a bit naivete to some, but it really works. Uh, we really have to believe that there's great good that will come out of this, and, and that's my faith. But how do you deal with, uh, I'm sure there are those in the flock who are going to express um, a lack of faith, a, a, a decision that when they look back at what perhaps happened in their own family, perhaps to their own you know, friends and loved ones, that because of that, their faith has either been shaken or taken away. How do you deal yep. with that? I, and I deal with it, meaning I don't negate it. I, I make room for it. Uh, I make room for doubts. You know, how can, how, how can there be this great designer, architect, God of the universe who permits, right? It's a quintessential query. How can we both believe in God and both succumb to the idea that that God somehow permits 
well, I don't want to go theological here about the fallen nature of man and humanity and, and the earth for that matter, uh, because that's the outcome. The outcome is the sickness and disease, racism, bigotry. It's sinful. It's the outcome of the sinful nature of what took place many years ago. With that being said, there's redemption. There's hope. God is not afraid of doubt. God is not afraid of that person saying, I lost a loved one. Where were you? You know, why didn't you show up? God is not afraid of these queries at all whatsoever. As a pastor, I have to provide space. I can't rebuke or repudiate the questions or the doubt or even the diminished amount of faith. However, even a recent Gallup poll indicates you would assume that spirituality would have diminished exponentially in the past year because of COVID. Quite the contrary. When things go bad in the world, spiritual hunger increases. There is more spiritual hunger, not necessarily religious now, not religion, but hunger for spirituality, hunger for the big questions, the great metaphysical and cosmic questions than ever before in American history. So I do believe that this moment of of darkness will inevitably turn into a moment of great light. Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Reverend, thanks for talking to us. Coming up after this short break, can schools remain open until the pandemic ends? More and more schools are reopening across the country, but not everything is smooth. There are still problems they face because of the pandemic. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Avenel Joseph, vice president of policy at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, about the present and the future status of the schools. Things are looking, are trending back towards normal. Schools across the country are reopening in in greater and greater numbers. My oldest is finally back in school after a year and two weeks. Um, She's going in twice a day, twice a week, every week. So I think we're slowly um, starting to resume in-person class learning. And uh, I think that's great for students and for teachers alike. How much do you think kids have lost in the last year? Is there any way to tangibly measure, because I can't imagine as having a front row to homeschooling, as much as everybody tried their best, you, you're going to get what you need, you know, to, to get you through the year. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's going to be um, uh, lots of post-mortem studies that are going to be done in terms of learning lags and and other disadvantages that were proposed presented themselves as a result of schools being shut down over the the last two the last year plus you know i think one of the things that we have to remember is that parents and schools and children and in, in many communities especially underserved communities were always as an at an inher- inherent disadvantage and put on top of that with schools being closed uh, many children of color in particular have been hit the hardest by learning loss that would resulted from those pandemic related school shutdowns in addition to the learning laws how much of a concern is the social laws maybe not for this is how i've always looked at it i feel like the older kids the biggest loss is the social from an they lose the opportunity to go to prom like once in a lifetime things. And I know it's not a huge deal, but it is when you're in that moment. Um, and from a younger kid, you're just kind of looking to learning how to be social and maybe that development is interrupted. How much of a concern is aside from the educational, the social for kids that haven't been in school? Yeah, I mean, there are academic health social and emotional benefits of in-person learning. And I think those are both short-term in nature as well as long-term. I mean, in-person learning has very strong links 
uh, there's strong links between education and higher paying jobs, reduced risk of chronic disease and longer lifespans. You know, I think kids, especially over this last year, have shown an incredible amount of resiliency and they will uh, resume you know, to whatever sort of normal they have. I know for me as a parent, I had two kids under the age of five and I was really concerned about having them back in school where they have to stay physically distant from uh, their classmates, where they have to wear masks all day long. And, you know, my kid comes home after the first day of, of school just beaming. It doesn't matter that she couldn't hug her classmates or that she has to stay on a sticker when she's walking, um, uh, you know, into the into the classroom to stay six feet away from from her her classmate. I think just being in a physical school situation, being able to see her friends, see her teachers, hear what they're saying um, in person, all of that uh, brings tremendous benefits. One of the things I struggled with with the idea. There was so much talk, and rightfully so, about how important it was to get kids back in school in person, and that was at the top of the depth chart for people. Why in the world didn't we prioritize across the board teachers and support staff to get the vaccines in the first wave, almost maybe with medical professionals and first responders? I, I just never understood that. Yeah, I mean, I think every every state had their own um way in, of interpreting the federal guidelines, and every state did it a little bit differently. In some states, teachers were um, considered frontline essential workers and were given access to, to the vaccine at that same sort of tier one level. In other states, that wasn't the case. You know, I think we're finally at a point now where our supply is surpassing our demand. And so at this point, um, and, and certainly over the next um, a couple weeks since Biden has said by April 1st, he wants you know uh, this to be opened up even wider than that. Everyone who wants a, a vaccine will be able to get it. And I think that's the important thing to focus on. There are a lot of schools that all the protocols put in place, not to mention the lost time, has put a real strain financially. What's the level of concern schools are going to be able to mitigate that? I know money from the federal government is coming and more promised. Uh, what's the level of concern with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that has to happen to you know, we were we are ready in this country pre-pandemic. I think that's the important thing to remember. Remember, pre-pandemic, our schools, our public schools in particular, particularly those in cities and in rural areas, were struggling. They were struggling in terms of infrastructure. They were struggling in terms of resources. All of that has just been exasperated by the pandemic, but it hasn't fundamentally changed the problem, which is that we've underinvested in schools and school systems for far too long and in our teachers and in our workforce. The American Rescue Plan Act provides an additional $123 billion in federal funding for school districts. And that's the largest ever one-time federal investment in education. So schools and school districts are going to have to use some of that funding they receive to address learning loss, but they also have flexibility on how to use these dollars. And that funding can help to make up for state and local budget shortfalls that were being used as reasons to lay off to, to lay off students or to make cuts in, uh, sorry, lay off uh, teachers or to make cuts in school programming. We now have the funding in place to help these schools open safely. So that means we have to focus on infrastructure, things like protective equipment ventilation systems, additional transportation for students to get to schools. It means bringing in nurses and counselors in addition to additional teachers. It might mean having to uh, invest in portable classrooms to ensure that students can uh, maintain their proper, proper 
spacing and, and more staffing to reduce that student to teacher ratio. You know, when the schools have the necessary resources and they follow these protocols that have been put out by the CDC, in-person learning has worked remarkably well without accelerating the community spread, which I think is a real concern. We don't want to send kids back into school only for them to be spreading it back into the community. We've, we've seen now that the data has demonstrated that school transmission happens even lower than it happens in the community. But we, we also need to focus a lot of these dollars and this new renewed investment in um, students of color and students from lower income in neighborhoods where for years and generations the government has failed to invest in those schools and those school districts. So there's going to be long-term health and economic ramifications for those failures and that's going to include the widening of the achievement gaps and potentially lower future earnings for those students. And that's the type of stuff that we really need to focus this new investment on trying to mitigate. If you're getting sick and tired of Zoom, so is your boss. Citigroup recently announced it was creating something called Zoom Free Fridays to give workers a break on video meetings. There was concern early in the pandemic that Zoom or other video conferencing software might not be the most productive thing for workers. A study from Wondermail Research found 42% of people contributed nothing to the call. <laughs> that sounds like when I'm oh, on gosh, one of these. That's me, I was <laughs> yes, going to say, yeah. sitting in the corner well, like, uh-huh, I'm in that yeah, 42%. Sure. And 73% of respondents considered doing a Zoom meeting work done, giving the illusion of being productive. <laughs> City says part of its decision was concern from workers about the blurring of lines between work and home. This is an Odyssey original podcast. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. But not on Zoom. No, it's just radio. (laughs) 